365 Success app offers a simple daily tip for a more balanced life. 365 Success is a one-year plan over six levels where a new tip is displayed each day. The people behind 365 Success are academic and creative life hackers Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Graham Hughes and Marie O'Riordan. Discover 365 Success, available now in the App Store. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 39 of Purple Psychology. This podcast is brought to you by 365 Success app. Search 365 Success, all one word, in the App Store. Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, hello. Thank you. Japanese children walking to school on their own from very young ages. What's the story? Yeah, I read this article. I'll post it on the Facebook page. And um, I thought it was quite quite shocking in some ways. It's a, it's a much poorer reflection on Europe than it is a good reflection on Japan, in my opinion. Um, but they send children in Japan out to do errands, and they you know they walk to school from four, but they'll go out and you know do errands in shops from two and three. Um, you know, run down there for some milk. Wow! Right? I love that! Yeah, but they, they wanted to look at, you know, why is a culture they could do this? Because, you know, Japan has got violence and it's got, you know, crime levels just like everywhere else in the world. So what makes people feel that they're, you know, that they're safe to send their children out? And what they discovered is that children are thought in society, now they're very involved, um, even in school, in in the cleaning and in the dishing out of food and serving food to their classmates and their peers. And, you know, they're very involved in the whole process of, of society. Responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, fr- from a very young age. So that's one element. But also they're thought that if they have a difficulty that they can always go to an elder and look for help. And so that people will always get involved and help them. And I think that that's one of the... I, it's one of the flaws, certainly in in Ireland, that I've seen, and also I've seen in the UK, in that the people will not stop and help somebody now. Like I always remember telling someone the story that I came across a little kid um, lost in the middle of Dublin. It was uh, I think it was close to Christmas last year actually, and. He was a little boy and he was very close to tears and I sort of bent down to his level and I said, are you okay? And he's like, I've lost my mother. And I was like, it's okay. I'm sure she's not gone too far. And what had happened was he'd come out of a shop and they were still inside, but they had gone upstairs and he'd lost them and he thought they'd come out of the shop. So he just brought him back into the shop and we asked everybody in the shop and it turned out they were upstairs and, you know, they were all reunited. But when I told somebody this story, what was very shocking to me was, oh, well, most people wouldn't stop and help now because, you know, you wouldn't know what you'd be accused of. And I sort of thought, that's really shocking. That's terrible. Because we just, even our personality type, we will always be the ones to help. Yeah, but I was quite shocked that someone would instantly have that outlook, that they would assume that there would be something bad thought of them for stopping to help. And there was another situation where a, a little boy went missing in a park in Dublin and there was a couple that of... That was things. us, yeah. And yeah. It was an American, American teenager. He had... Um, Anyway, you don't want me to go into details. She's waving me here not to go into the full details. But anyway, the police were involved and it was great and we found him very, very quickly. Yeah, but there was only three people that stopped to help the woman. And we were two of them. And we were two of them. And, you know, so it has made me look at our society and look at the fact that we don't jump in to help people now and what stops us from doing that. And that is why Japanese children can be sent out of their home at very young ages and given that responsibility because there is an assumption that if they get into difficulty and they turn around and ask an adult for help, that they will always help them. Okay, very good. Episode 39. Yes. um, 
thesis writing, PhDs, mental health. You were looking at me when I brought up this topic because you haven't experienced it, right? So you normally write a thesis um, in, a, in a communal kind of area. There'll usually be an office with several thesis students all working is this together. Is a master's student or PhD? Are you talking dissertation or thesis or is it all? It, it's all pretty much the same. It doesn't really matter. And, you know, there'll be a bit of a running joke that at some point everybody loses the plot. And I mean, like, very small things can set them off, like, you use my mug, you left stuff on my desk. <laughs> it's like jewellers. <laughs> if you touch anything, any one of their tools, you're dead. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, like, um, you've used all the printer paper again. You know, I mean, things... And a freak out. Yeah, total. Like, people completely lose it. And I actually got on to, th to thinking about why writing a thesis is so difficult, okay? Um... And, and why that transition? Because, like, there's a transition from going to school to university that's a bit hard, okay? But most people enjoy the freedom. Um, it's it's quite ironic. <laughs> in Ireland, some people enjoy the freedom a little too much. Well, no, but but it's quite ironic. Like, people will say that there's there's nothing as bad as sitting your end of school exams. Like, that's a universal theme. I'm not just talking about Ireland or the UK. It's it's everywhere. But the irony is, is that the exams that you sit for university are much, much harder than anything that you ever sat in school. But yet, it seems much more doable. And, and people will be in a good space about it. Um, and and I, I don't know what that is. It, there's, there's a whole combination of factors involved. And so have you tracked, or have you observed, mental illness in PhD and master's students around the world, is my question. Yes. And why is that jump? Having gone through school, you have to be a very good student, you will have to have done exceptionally well in your degree to get on to do a master's or to do a PhD. And the people who jump the step of doing a master's, well, you do that more in, in, in some fields than others. And it all boils down to funding. So okay? what are these real hidden triggers for the students who are starting to lose their minds. Right. So what's so different is that when you are sitting exams, you have a benchmark of how you're doing and you have sort of a set curriculum that you need to achieve. You have a set standard that you need to achieve in a set time frame. And, okay, I don't think that the degrees... Um, and courses that you do in universities can be compared. Because I know when I was doing science, I had 60 hours of lectures a week. My flatmate had four. You what now? Yeah. My, my 60? Yeah. My, my, with lab time. My flatmate had four hours of lectures a week. I had a lever arch file per subject, and she had a lever arch file for her year at the end of the year. So, you know, so, so there, there, is, there is a difference. Like, well, you were the one who chose the sciences. Yeah, I know. So it's, it's my, own, my own fault. But you, you do have a benchmark and you do know exactly what's required of you. When you go in to do a thesis, there isn't an obvious benchmark anymore. You don't know how you're doing in relation to other people anymore. Um, you don't, there is a time frame, but there's not a set course materials be covered it's not as obvious to people like the research papers in your field are it and how you go about writing the literature review and so on should be your benchmarks 
But the way that we supervise students, people don't realize that those are their benchmarks. So they think the whole concept of benchmarks and how am I doing has gone out the window. And no matter how good a student they are, because they've had to be a brilliant student to get to this level, only good students get to write a thesis. And they suddenly feel like, oh God, I'm, I'm doing rubbish and everybody else is doing better than me and they're doing more work than me, where that's a kind of a warped reality of what's really going on. The other aspect of it is, is that you're quite isolated. Um, when you're doing a degree, um, you will always do lectures with other people. You'll do tutorials, which is a smaller group of people. When you're writing a thesis, you're on your own. And, and depending on how good your supervisor is and how good they are at organising meetings, you may not actually get to talk to anybody about your work for weeks on end. Um, and so... The Robinson Crusoe effect. <laughs> it pretty much is. You're completely marooned on an island. And then there's the nature of research. So if you get a project that is quite what I call box ticking in that there's, and this can be a degree thesis, it can be a master's thesis, or it can even be a PhD thesis, right? And there's set criteria that you have to go through. And yours is very well structured and laid out. And maybe there's been some very good research papers already on it. And there's a very clear method. And you know exactly what's going to do. You're going to run an experiment, you're going to get answers, and then you're going to write about them, okay? But if you get a cutting-edge research thesis, which a lot of people want because you're going to produce more papers and it's going to be more kudos and you're going to build a better career on it, it won't be as well proven. There won't be as many research papers. There was three research papers for my thesis in the whole world. Um, <laughs> three? Three. That was it. That was it. Um, you, it won't necessarily be set up brilliantly. I sometimes thought that my PhD thesis was written on the back of a postage stamp. <laughs> um, you know, that was the development that went into it. And that is the nature of research, that if you do a difficult project, you will invariably run into potholes, because that's how research works. And so that's fine if you've got a number of years to do a PhD, but if you've got 16 weeks to produce an end-of-degree thesis, it's a whole other ballpark, because everybody else has moved on and submitted, and you're probably looking for an extension in time, and everybody's going, oh yeah, maybe we shouldn't have thought of that, and you haven't got time to rerun the experiments. You know, what you have, what you've got in your data is what you've got to write about, and it may not be pretty, and it may not be brilliant, um, so those, like, I mean, there's, there's huge strains in, in doing a, a thesis, and we don't think about those. Yeah, because, you know, even people in my family that, and, and they, you know, they have their doctorates and this sort of stuff, and you're looking going, oh my God, they spent like almost their entire life in a university, a bit like you, and it's just crazy. I remember the first time you handed me your PhD, your dissertation, and I was like, oh my God, what was it? Did that take you five years or something? On top of your degree, that's insane to me. Yeah, it wasn't quite. It wasn't quite that long. Um, but yeah, and and I got I I did originally want to study medicine. Everybody goes on about you know studying medicine. You know, is oh so difficult, so long in university. But I'm sorry, there's a course, there's a curriculum, there's certain benchmarks. You know exactly how you're doing in relation to the rest of your class, and you sit in a series of exams at regular intervals, and you know how you're doing. Um, a PhD thesis is a whole other minefield. Now we're on to my favourite subject in the world, analysing language patterns, specifically positive and negative impactation of people's language. Every so often I'll get something in my inbox or I'll see something online and it pushes me over the edge a little bit. I try to be so positive, but... Go on, go on, let rip. But to tell a high-achieving student that you are disappointed with them Right? Regardless of what 
you're actually disappointed about, which we'll go back to in a minute, is like that's that's life annihilating. Did they do anything in inverted commas wrong? They moved on and they did extra work of their own accord. Yes, and of it, their own accord. Yes, and and this is quite the reason that this touched such a nerve with me, is because. I remember a number of incidents. So I went to an awful primary school. Then I changed and went to a brilliant primary school. In the last year of the brilliant primary school, I got an awful teacher. And then I went to an awful secondary school. And then I went to a great university. So I did the sort of roller coaster effect of education. And the year where I was in the great school and I got the awful teacher, um, and eventually people intervened and sorted them out. Um, there was two things that happened. One was I, I moved ahead and I did extra work in maths because I was bored and I had done what the class had done and I got into trouble for it. And I, you know, they made me look very bad to the rest of the class. And I and I think they called me a swat or something. It was really, it was quite horrible. And there was a, there was a number of people in the class who actually started bullying me from that incident. And then um, there was another occasion where we had done tests and we'd done a history test. And I think I got something like um, 97%, right? And I had one thing wrong, but I didn't understand what it was that I'd done wrong. And I asked what I'd done wrong, because I just wanted to know the answer. Sure. Right? And they, like, made absolute mock of me. Like, you know, oh, God, like, you know, I got such a high score, which I was never going to tell anybody in the class what I got in my history test. And, you know, bearing in mind, like, that I was severely dyslexic and what effort it would have cost me to get 97% in the history test. And, mm. um, you know, I, I wouldn't have been the kid that ever told anybody what I got. So she told the whole class what I got. She then made me look really, really bad for, you know, nitpicking over what I got wrong. When I just wanted to know the answer to what I got wrong. Because mm. I was that kind of person, you know. I wanted yeah. to know if I ever got that question again, what the right answer was. Yeah, I got two A's in history and geography in the intersert and nearly dropped out. <laughs> Um, so yes so this really touched the chord with me but like even if someone has done something wrong to tell them that they're you're that they're disappointing oh it's 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 devastating and uh you never forget it i i mean look you know me when i go up on stage and i'm talking and i'm talking about the language part and all that i, I could be here for hours but um it's just so horrible you know, even in Ireland, we're broad and we're where we are, and to hear how people are spoken to in the workplace, um, on the street, on public transport, in a plane, at an airport, it's it's so. I I I know I'm highly sensitive, but I find it soul destroying. It takes a little piece of my soul every time I you have this power tripping person who thinks they're getting won over on someone by making for them. I can't use that word, I'll just edit it out. So if there's a beep, it's because I used a, 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 not a bad word, but a word that may be interpreted as poor. Um, but, but yeah, like, and, and I suppose for me, like, I always find it very hard when I see parents really saying difficult things to their kids that I know that they'll store up and carry around for life. You know, you, you never forget someone's words that they say to you. Oh, it's terrible, yeah. So, we'll finish up on that. Episode 39 of Purple Psychology. The website is purplepsychology.com. This podcast is brought to you by 365 Success app. You can search 365 Success, all one word, in the App Store. Thanks for listening. 365 Success app offers a simple daily tip for a more balanced life. 365 Success is a one-year plan over six levels where a new tip is displayed each day. 
The people behind 365 Success are academic and creative life hackers Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Graham Hughes, and Marie O'Riordan. Discover 365 Success, available now in the App Store.